1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this very special Together We Read edition of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is just Adam today. Jill is off in Denver for the American Library Association uh, midwinter meetings. So she's doing some awesome interviews, uh, meeting with a bunch of publishers, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, All that means is you just have me for today. Uh, Today's interview is with Dennis Bach, who is the author of The Communist's Daughter, Uh, The Communist Daughter was chosen by our Canadian users as the Together We Read uh, digital book club. So basically what that means, if you're not familiar with our book clubs, if this is the first time you're hearing the podcast, uh, Together We Read is a digital book club, and it's being featured through all of our participating libraries throughout Canada from February 15th through March 1st. Uh, So what that means is that anyone who is a member of one of those participating libraries can borrow The Communist's Daughter from their library's Overdrive website without any wait lists or holds. It'll be right on the front of your website. You'll see it right away. Uh, And then you can go to togetherweread.com and join our book club. You can chat about the book. You can share your thoughts. uh, You can tell us what you think of the book, discuss themes, basically anything you would normally do in a book club, but do the wonders of the internet. And as a part of our book club programs, our Together We Read programs, our Big Library Read programs, it's a global one, we always do interviews with the authors. So Dennis Bach came on the episode today to discuss with uh, Jill and I his book, Uh, The Communist Daughter. Uh, It is a really interesting historical fiction novel. Uh, It tells a mostly true story of the legendary Canadian doctor, Norman Bethune, uh, but he also inputs some of his own ideas and some of his own aspects to create this really, really great story uh, about his travels through northern China and and all sorts of other stuff. So I won't get into all of that because uh, Dennis gets into all of that with us in just a few moments here. Uh, If you are interested in reaching out to us, you can find us at pro book nerds on instagram and twitter you can always email us at professional book nerds at overdrive.com and again if you this is the first time you're hearing the podcast because of the together we read program you can subscribe to our podcast in itunes you can subscribe to our podcast on spotify on stitcher really anywhere that you listen to podcasts you can find us just search professional book nerds and there we will be Um, okay I'm not going to keep you guys any longer. I hope you all enjoyed this wonderful, wonderful conversation we had with Dennis Bach on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi everyone, it's Adam and Jilligan, and today we're incredibly excited to be joined by Dennis Bach, the number one national best-selling and award-winning author of such books including Olympia, which won the Canadian Association Jubilee Award, and the Ash Garden, which was shortlisted for the prestigious International Impact Dublin Literary Award, among others. His novel, The Communist Daughter, was chosen as the next Together We Read Canadian book club selection. So from February 15th through March 1st, users all across Canada uh, who are a part of Overdrive Libraries can borrow the title without Waitlist or holds from their Overdrive collection, and then they can join our discussion at togetherweread.com. So Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Would you mind
3: kicking us off by providing an introduction to *The Communist Daughter*?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, *The Communist Daughter* is a—it's a fictional memoir um, written in the voice of Norman Bethune, who was a a really uh, famous Canadian surgeon back in the thirties. Um, he was—he was—he was, uh, he was, he was uh, an inventor. He was a, a war battle surgeon. He was—he was. Uh, he was he was a sort of uh he was a, an idealist. He was an altruist who just sort of, you know, went into the heart of of, uh, of the two main uh, wars uh, back in the '30s. He was—he uh, was a communist. He was, but he was—he um, was the kind of guy who wanted to change the world for the better, and that's what attracted me to to the story of Norman Bethune in the first place. Um, his sort of like big adventurous life he lived in. Spain, and he lived in China, where he worked. Um, he, he just was—he just—he like, was an incredibly impassioned and um, and, uh, and and active kind of guy who who really wanted to, to change the world for the better. Uh, and 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 so I knew a little bit about him before I started writing the book. I knew his sort of the resume, you know, like the things he did and the places he went and so on. Um, that was enough to attract me into his life to sort of start thinking deeply about him, but. What I found way more interesting than than the great adventures that he lived through was was why he did what he did, what motivated him, and all the books that I read about him. Um, you know, they talked about his great accompl- accomplishments and so on, but I never really tried to understand who the man was, what drove him, and so that was my sort of my 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 first steps into the writing process. I wanted to sort of find a more nuanced and layered uh, version of the man turn him into a real man uh, as opposed to a hero um, you know he's in China he's still celebrated as this you know as this great revolutionary because he you know he died in China fighting against fascism and um, and so uh, so that side of him is, is really well known and celebrated and so on he's an iconic figure there as he is here in some in some smaller way in Canada but that wasn't good enough for me I wanted to sort of get into his life and try to understand what makes a man like that leave behind family and comfort and step out into, you know, the middle of a battlefield where he, you know, he sacrificed himself in the end. So it, he's, he, he's, he's a way more complicated figure than I ever thought he would be. Um, but as a novelist, I'm really drawn to that sort of complicated layering character that the film really is in real life.
1: So I have to say... Um before doing research for this i i knew who norman bethune was but as i did a little bit more research you know i found out just how famous he was like you mentioned in china i mean they literally have statues of the guy um so i'm curious as a not from a novelist standpoint what made you want to create a fictional story around someone who is admittedly as historical figures go he's pretty well established
2: yeah, well well that's the exact reason because the legend sort of overshadows the reality. Uh, you know, he's been in China for example, he's been used as a as a model of you know, of, of, you know, living and behavior and, and ethics and all that stuff for for, you know, seventy years. And rightly so fine. He was an amazing he was an amazing person. Um, a great a great gifted surgeon who who you know, who basically invented the mobile army surgical hospital. Um but, you know, there's there, I, I, I didn't find any, as I started to read about him, any any attempt to actually create a a, a, a more layered co- a, a portrait of the guy. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a legend and icon and myth about him um, because of his enormous sacrifices and talents and so on. But I, as a novelist, I wanted to get in a little deeper and, and try to figure out, you know, what his... What his what his secret motivations were, not not nefarious, not secret in that <laughs> sense, but, but the private motivations that, that make somebody like him do what he did.
3: So while you were writing and, and researching his story, did you come across any challenges, or were there benefits to using his real-life story to to ground the, the tale you were telling?
2: Challenges? Um, well, the, the challenge was really sort of trying to, trying to understand him. Sort of moved beyond the, you know, the, the like the, the the big adventurous life that he lived and the great accomplishments that he achieved. Um, yeah, so I mean that was that was the, you know, nothing is easy in in novel writing, but that was the easiest part, sort of just following his life, you know. Um, uh, until I came to this, like I didn't know where to go. In the way I write novels, I never know where I'm going from one day to the next until quite near the end, and um, quite near the end of this of the writing process. Of the first few drafts, um, I came across this, um, you know, this, this silence, this, this blank, this blank spot in, in the written history of Norman Bethune. He was a really, um, active letter writer and poet and short story writer and he was always writing opinion pieces for the, for the, the newspapers and letters home, etc. But there was this, there's this brief period in time where, where all, Evidence of the scene sort of disappears in terms of, you know, getting his thoughts, uh, down on paper when he returns from Spain and before he goes to China. Um, and that really intrigued me. I wondered why he stopped writing, why he stopped committing himself, um, on paper. And, and I, I saw this as the opportunity, um, of a, of a novelist to, to go in and sort of investigate the, the silences of, of, Of of that what happens what happens to a man um, just before that silence falls over him to make that silence occur right Um, and I and I I, that's what my book is about it's 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 sort of looking into into the uncharted uh, part of his life and speculating and sort of building out from from what I've learned about him and drawing some sort of larger understanding about, about what made him do what he did.
1: So is that why you chose to, to make this story uh, first-person uh, first narration because of his sort of prolific writing ahead of time and then there being that, that gap?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to make, uh, I wanted to recreate his voice. That was really important to me. So the letter is presented in, in the form of, of seven very long letters to a daughter that he in fact, never did have. But as a novelist, um, you're quite free to do whatever you want if you put the you know the word novel" on the front of your book <laughs> and so <as> a storytelling <laughs> device I, I created uh, I gave him a daughter um, he actually did in fact have a relationship with a with a woman in Madrid um, and uh, and I sort of just ex- extrapolated out of that and and it turns out that this woman was, was in, rea- in reality sus- suspected. Of being a spy. So it was a, a wonderful sort of irony that, um, for a novelist, you know, to, to realize that his, his, um, very lefty communist, uh, protagonist was, you know, was sleeping with, uh, quite literally with the enemy. Um, and so I just sort of, you know, sort of kept, kept putting pressure on that, uh, that part of the story and suddenly his daughter appeared and, and there, there became the sort of, the anchor for the, for the narrative. He, these letters are all addressed to the daughter he never met um, and he didn't meet her because he, he abandoned Spain uh, for China because he had, uh, he'd had a really rough time in, in Spain, not in terms of uh, his war experience but working with the people around him who saw him as an empire builder, as reckless. Um, his, his ego and his vanity really bothered a lot of people. And he was he was really uh, he was really bothered by the fact that personalities could get in the way of the struggle, right? So this was his first challenge, the challenge that uh, that, that that sort of you know that, that challenged his, his idealism that he had brought to Spain, and that's the reason why he he stopped writing when he went back to North America for uh, for a couple of months, and before he went to China, which is in my idea of the scene the reason why he went back to China or went, why he went to China after Spain was to seek some, some form of redemption um, after having lost this faith this, uh, this idealism this, this altruism that had carried him to Madrid in the first place so the daughter is, is really an anchor to the novel
3: both the communist daughter and the Ash Garden are set uh, against the backdrop of war as a writer was it what is it about war stories that attracts you so much
2: well um, I, I, I guess um the urgency everything is you know quite literally life and death um you know i grew up in peaceful toronto or (laughs) southwestern ontario and had no taste of it thankfully but my parents came came to canada from germany in the 50s and they were kids during the second world war and so i heard a lot of their stories my mom specifically um you know lived in a a city that was that was that was bombed a lot and that, that sort of thing so she was um she had a living memory of, of of war, and I was always sort of um, a part of those memories as she as she talked to me as a as a kid. And so that um, that sort of mood some, somehow kind of permeated my childhood, and it's it's kind of very easy for me to imagine those times, uh, the times that my mother used to tell me about, and my my father as well. So it's it just. At that time, when I was writing those books, uh, Communist Daughter in the Ash Garden, it felt very natural for me to, to want to go back to that era and to explore it and to recreate certain images that I had
1: formed, um, I guess, as a kid. So, as I was kind of thinking through those two books, one of them is structured around an instrument of you know, total destruction and death, uh, while the other one is about a person. You know Bethune, who works really hard to save lives on a you know a singular level, almost one at a time, and then at a, at a far greater le- greater level with you know the things that he brought about. Um, for you as a writer, did you feel a connective tissue between these two stories? I mean, I know that they're both on the opposite spectrum of war, admittedly, but did you feel them being connected at all?
2: Yeah, well, both of the characters, the the, the protagonists in those books, Anton Boll, the physicist who helped create the atomic bomb and Norman Passume, they're both men in a unique position where they have some talent that
1: follow up on that i was just thinking about these you know very famous human beings that affected the world in, in such a great way are those the type of stories that you know we we talked about how you see war stories as life and death and so the immediacy of them and things like that but uh when you're discovering stories that you want to expand on and create novels about is it looking for those famous individuals and building it out from there, or I guess just where do you know where do the ideas come from? Is it either the people or the the idea of you know war as as a whole? I'm just really interested by the fact that you have these two very famous people. Yeah, well, the
2: yeah, well, it was it was sort of the idea of his life, the the, 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 the big the big challenging adventure that. Was affected by by the bomb in Hiroshima, and half of that novel is narrated in her voice. And you know the the, the dark side of the equation, the, the scientist who helps with the construction of the bomb. I wanted to create layers in him as well. I wanted to sort of switch hats from you know black hat, white hat, and sort of find the humanity in both of those characters. So each book is a sort of it's a very kind of slow peeling away of layers. I don't really start out with one hard bang and everything is clear in my head. It's all it's a very, very slow process of stumbling forwards and back and forward and back until until the book is, is pretty well there in front of you.
3: I've seen you say that when you are when you're writing one of your books, uh, what you read, you're very selective about that. What is the reason behind that?
2: Well, uh, when I'm writing a book in in uh, first person and uh, I, I cannot read uh, a book in third. Um, I have to I have to read because I'll, you know, if, if I'm writing a book in first person and I read and I pick, up, pick up a book uh, by Kolm Tobin and written in third person, I'll be so mesmerized that I will want to switch my narrative to third person, right? Um, I'm in a sense, I'm a chameleon, you know I, I get really excited about the voice that I'm reading. and if it's in a voice that I'm not trying to work in, I will begin to <laughs> doubt myself, or you know, want to switch narrative voices, or something like that. So, also, subject better helps, right? Um, you know, if you're if you're writing, um, you know, books set in the 40s, it's it's maybe a good idea to pick up a couple of novels written at that time or that reflect that time uh, to help you with nuance and language and certain small details, that sort of thing, right? So, I'm
1: just just not to I don't want to make you more paranoid but now I'm thinking about this um so if you're writing a book like set in the 40s around you know World War II do you ever concern yourself with if you're reading a book about World War II set in that time if you ever get worried that you're gonna read a snippet of something and be like oh wait actually I think I want to tell that story
2: yeah well I I wouldn't go too closely to my own subject matter (laughs) um you know when I was writing the Ash Garden I think um memoirs of a geisha was really big at the mm-hmm. time, or just a, a year or two earlier um and there's uh, you know I, I i knew the basic storyline of, of of that novel, but I didn't go near it because I thought well, I'm gonna inadvertently sort of you know pick up too much from that novel or 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 that it would influence me in a way so um specific subject matter I stay away from but but in terms of voice and and general content, yeah, I can be, I can, I can look for books that will, that will help guide the way for sure.
3: So when you aren't writing, what sorts of books do you like to read?
2: Uh, I love reading memoirs, uh, memoirs and autobiography, they have a really great sense of, of encapsulating a life, um, I like the, the storyteller's um, distant point of view, you know, when you're outside the story as, as the reader, um, the, and the life is, said autobiography i should have said biography when a life is complete right i really love that sense of 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 a life having been lived and and retold to a reader um something i don't know something something beautiful and nostalgic about that when a life comes to a completion
1: all right so since we have a writer with us who loves reading memoirs i think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you do you have any memoirs that you recommend or just a few that you really loved personally um I, I, I read a, I used to read a lot when I was when I was a
2: bit younger. Um, but I' I can't, I can't think of the, the the most recent one I've read actually. That's okay, No worries. Uh,
3: so speaking of when you were younger, um, we've noted in your biography that you state that you had very few English language books available in your childhood home. So I'm just sort of curious when did you sort of decide that you wanted to be a writer for a living?
2: Uh, yeah, probably in, uh, sort of midway, midway through high school, um, you know, I was the kind of kid who wasn't really good at, at anything at school until, until books were, were presented to me, until English class got serious, and, and then everything became, you know, quite wonderful and, and easy for me. Uh, until then I had, you know, I had no spe- uh, specific, you know, talents or interests that I can recall. Um... Yeah, so I guess one of the reasons is because we didn't have lots of English language books at home. Um, books we did have were were German books, I think. And my parents weren't great readers either, you know. So we had some encyclopedias and so on, but but that was it. So and so, but you know, our house was a was a story of was a house of storytellers, really, more than than readers at the time. So I think that's what sort of that's primed my imagination. I think um, always. Imagining what was off the page, what was you know beyond the walls of the house, the, the, what my parents had left behind as youngsters coming from Germany. Um, so I think it was probably when I was around 16 or something like that. Then that I began to read serious novels. I sort of leapfrogged right over the fairy tale stuff and the and the you know young adult writing or reading, I should say, and the Hardy Boys and that sort of thing, right into you know Hemingway and Fitzgerald and you know, Gertrude Stein and and those those glorious expats back then. Um, and I, you know, I hit the ground running, I think, at, at that point.
1: So after that, did you take, like, creative writing classes? Or I guess, you know, at, beyond your teenage years, were you anticipating being a writer for a living?
2: I, I, I did anticipate it, though, long before I had any sense that I'd be able to do it. Um, in fact, you know, I mean, I wanted to do it. It, 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 it seemed like... You know, I had some sort of romantic notions of what writers do, I think, uh, when I was a teenager. But, um, you know, it just turned out that I was actually able to do it. So I did not take any creative writing classes, uh, though, who knows, it may have helped me. I give them now. I'm, I, I teach at U of T uh, a lot. And, uh, you know, there's, there are certain things you can, you can, you can c- communicate about the writing process and Stories need and what, what, you know, how to sort of uh, edit yourself and that sort of thing. But know, um, yeah, quite unre- unrealistically, I decided I'd be a writer by the age of eighteen or something like that, and uh, <laughs> and started, you know, writing terrible short stories and poems and so on. And spent the next ten years of my life trying to do that until I started writing okay stories. Right. So yeah, it was it was a dream that I had from from very early on. Um,
1: you mentioned the the writing and. and Process and the editing process. I think I saw in an interview you did that you will basically write hundreds of thousands of words for your books and then just kind of chop stuff. Is that correct?
2: Uh, I'll write hundreds of thousands of words for sure, and I'm probably not that unusual. I'm I'm, I'm sure most you know literary writers do that. Um, I've read a lot of interviews and talked to a lot of writers who say the same. You know, I'm halfway through my book and I still don't know what it's about you know, I'm the same way, so I write a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and uh, it's not just sort of, uh, you know, chopping out the excess 85% of it, it's, it's you know, sort of, it's finding good stuff, um, you know, inside the, the 500,000 words, and then, you know, extracting that, and then, you know, rewriting the whole part, that whole part, right, so it's, it's not just a lot of uh, cutting and then, and then cutting and pasting, it's, um, you know, it's, writing a lot of words to find your characters to find your setting um, looking for your story I think I think writers or I at least unconsciously leave some signposts along the way you know if you see that you know as you look over a draft from six months earlier uh, that you keep referring to to something uh, some motif uh, comes up again and again um, you know you might sort of pause to examine it and to Ask yourself, you know, why? Why does this, you know, red rose keep <laughs> occurring in this in this in this protagonist's life, for example? And then, sort of using using that motif to find some, you know, find some 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 edge into the story, right? So it's all very kind of you know, airy fairy and mystical, but it, it's, it's like just to get to that point where you can begin a serious edit, and that's where the storyteller's craft. Comes in, you know. There's a lot of craft involved. It's not just sort of closing your eyes and banging it, up, banging it out. Um, you know, sort of worrying about pacing and characterization and 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 you know, resolution and all that sort of thing, right?
1: Okay, you're describing this very clinically, but you have to be honest. It has to hurt a little bit to chop that much of your writing. Oh yeah, no, it's it's. it's terrible it's it's you know when you're doing it you think you're cutting off your arm um
2: it's, it's, it's so horrible right but it's you know it's it's, it's necessary and, and and you know every writer does it right you just you can't just you know publish the first 300 pages that come out yeah so it's um you know it's very you know there's, there's a lot of discipline there's a lot of like tough days like oh my god i love that character but you realize that character no longer belongs in your story that sort of thing right but that's that's just the artistic process it's it's creation and destruction over and over again, you know, until you, until you
1: only have the, the creation part. Okay, that, that last question was kind of like a Turing test situation. <laughs> I was just making sure that you weren't a robot here, so we're in the clear. <laughs>
3: okay, good. <laughs> so at the end of every uh, interview, we like to do what we call the nerd nine, which are nine um, sort of rapid-fire, light-hearted questions. So don't put too much thought into okay. them, Okay
2: good that means I won't either
3: (laughs) (laughs) what was the last book you finished reading
2: Uh, it was a manuscript just two days ago uh, from one of my my freelance clients (laughs)
3: do you have a favorite place to read
2: Uh, at my desk
3: what book made you fall in love with reading
2: Uh, A farewell to arms
3: what is one place that you would like to travel to that you haven't been to yet
2: um, Argentina, Patagonia.
3: Do you have a favorite holiday you like to celebrate?
2: Um, no, I don't. I'm, I'm so unreligious, it's, it's just, it's terrible. <laughs>
3: no, that's fair. Are you a coffee or tea drinker? Coffee. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Do you have a favorite food? And if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick?
2: Um, Pierre
1: Trudeau. That's a good one.
3: And what? finally, what do you hope readers take away from reading The Communist's Daughter?
2: Uh, just the idea that he is a very complex and, and complete man who, uh, while being able to, like, changed a big corner of the world and change it for the better. He was also a deeply flawed
1: man, which means he was a real human being. That's perfect. Dennis, this was a lot of fun and really informative. So thank you so much for joining us today.
2: It was a pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Thanks. Thanks.
3: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace.